You're listening to Artistic Finance Show 151. Today's show is a broadcast of the Financial Independence Club, brought to you in collaboration with Utopia Dreamscape. We discuss decolonizing wealth by Edgar Villanueva, presented by Natasha Joy de Souza. We talk about the colonizer virus, money as a medicine, and the seven steps to healing. Without further ado, let's get to the show. You are listening to Artistic Finance, where we help creatives learn about the business of show business. Welcome and thank you for being here for the June Financial Independence Club, also known as Fi Club, the place where we learn things like cool begets cool. And taking a gap month off of work is something to strive for if you want to try something new, but you can't quite afford to take a gap year. And I've never taken a gap anything except, I guess, with the baby. I'm now sort of taking gap weeks here and there off work.、Uh, I also just want to say, anybody watching this on video, I am in a car right now, and it's about 8 p.m. <laughs> and so the lights are slowly going to fade. So if I fade into darkness. That's what happened to me. You are a theatrical lighting designer. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll turn up the brightness on my screen, and then you'll see my head. <laughs>、um, but now, for our host, the person who brought this whole thing together, Amy D. Lux. Hello, happy to be here as always. Thank you so much, Ethan.、Um, I always love to remind anyone that is new here or who has been here before. Our vision for the Financial Independence Club is financial literacy for creatives. With a mission to create transparent forum, a transparent forum and inclusive community to propel creatives and art workers into financial security, because everyone deserves prosperity. So thank you, thank you all for being here.、Um, the book this month is incredible.、Uh, I really believe that this should be required reading in school. This is "Decolonizing Wealth" by Edgar Villanueva. He brings a massive amount of perspective, not only to the history of injustice against Black, Indigenous, and people of color, but even more disappointingly, in the book, he highlights the inequity in the field of philanthropy itself.、Uh, and while the statistics are harrowing, throughout the book, he offers insights and solutions for reparations and collective healing.、Uh, this book really resonated with me. If you've been here before, you have heard me say over and over that I used to have a money is evil mindset for the majority of my life, and I later shifted to wanting to use money as a tool in order to help others and as well as my older self. Uh, so I will frequently tag financial feminism in、uh, my FI posts as a way to open the discussion about how money is a tool and an amplifier, but does not have its own inherent energy.、Um, so in this book,、uh, he speaks to this concept as well, and in the Decolonized Wealth Handbook, which we'll get into a little bit as well,、uh, Edgar says, "quote Money should be a tool of love." To facilitate relationships, to help us thrive, rather than to hurt and divide us. So I really resonated with that and couldn't agree more.、Uh, so now I want to introduce our guest, Natasha Joy De Souza. She is an incredible, multifaceted force of nature. 
With a master's in communication and multimedia, she has worked as a marketing manager, producer, and journalist with humanitarian projects and documentaries involving the United Nations, USAID, Food and Agriculture Organization, and the World Bank, among others. She currently works as the Strategic Business Development Manager at Casbento, which is an online community of creatives offering classes both online and in real life, promoting creative expression for mental well-being and mental health. Natasha is a woman of color born in Pakistan and living in Australia. She's also a dog mom, globetrotter, and a joy to spend time with. We met at a food truck in Austin very recently, and within three three minutes, we decided we were going to drive to Mexico together the next day to donate bikes to a community with bikes across border, which I was already planning to do, but she was brave and courageous to jump in a van with me, a complete stranger for this incredible cause, and we had a fantastic time. So, Natasha, thank you so much for jumping in and joining us. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. Thanks for the great introduction. And that was such a fun trip to Mexico. Absolutely. So tell us what you thought of this book. You know, the book, um, I there was so much in the book I related, I could relate to because of my own experience of being a woman of colour um, in in white Australia. And when, when I first went to Australia was when I first realised that I was a woman of colour. And, and and I went to Australia when I was 33. So for me, um, that became really apparent. And then also I uh, sort of discovered how the indigenous races in Australia are very similar to what Edgar was talking about in his book. And, you know, their plight now and uh, their levels of poverty now and um, how they have to stand um in the poverty line to take what was already theirs in the first place which was stolen from them or what was stolen from them so um decolonizing wealth um was a really thought-provoking book that examines the role of philanthropy and wealth in perpetuating systems of colonization and inequality and you know my personal experience of working in pakistan with a lot of aid organizations i saw firsthand how philanthropy made no difference to the people's situation in the in the long term it wasn't sustainable everything that was being done all the money that was being spent was very short term and most of it was being used for administration administrative purposes for the white organization working in those third world countries. So having seen the back end of that, being a filmmaker in Pakistan, you know, I could see how Edgar being on the on the funding and investment side, how he could see the reality of it. And I'm glad that there's people that are on so many levels kind of seeing the dark side of philanthropy and like Edgar has actually been able to see through it and step out of it and um, and, and find a, a fine recourse and find a sort of a different way in, to do philanthropy, which is actually really make a difference. Yeah. And he calls it being in the in the uh, ivory tower. That's right. And it's such a small percentage of people of color that end up in those organizations 
And it's an even larger number of them that end up leaving for one reason or another, whether they're pushed out or they've become so discomfortable or uncomfortable to be, you know, to have to step out. Um, so the number of people that leave is higher than the number that people that are in it, uh, which is, you know, one of those statistics that is just terrifying to hear about. And so, you know, he does do incredible work, but it is so unfortunate and that these organizations are just, they're just set up to posture in a lot of ways. That's right. And he talked about his own experience about where he had reached a certain level and wanted to go higher. He wanted to go to the CEO's position and how his own equals didn't want him to rise. That was really also uh, interesting how he talked about being diminished as a race, a person of color by the by his you know by his own kind who who didn't want to see him rise either because of the colonial scarcity mindset that he was talking about the colonial virus so that exists in all of us and it made me sort of really look at myself to see where in my life do i reflect that you know and i'm sure there is i need to uh sort of spend more time integrating this book and i think it will take a while while i see every area of my life. So it was a really uh, thought-provoking book like in, in that sense and also a really reflective book on the role that we play in the colonial virus that he he has talked about. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's definitely a, a really great opportunity for personal reflection and the roles that we all play because this is systemic and nobody escapes it. Um, we all have to look inward and see what what our role is and how how we can do our part to to improve the situation. There's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. Yeah. And we can only start with ourselves. So what were some of the takeaways that you found in the book? I think uh, some of the key takeaways was that um, where he talked about was the really loving, coming from a place of love, philanthropy, using it as medicine and coming from a place of love and actually really seeing poverty. And he, in, in one place, asked the American audience to actually stop and look at poverty in the eye. I live in in Australia, but traveling around America now, I kind of see a lot of homeless people and I see that no one looks at them. And I spoke to a homeless person the other day and people looked at me funny. You know, people are not even willing to look at them, but he's not just asking them to, to look at them. He's asking them to look at the root of the problem that's causing this. And I think a lot of the decolonization of what he talks about is also very similar. Like, you know, philanthropy is an, is is very altruistic on one end, but on there's a on the on the shadow side, it's just giving from one hand and um, but causing pro- the problem on the other, perpetrating the whole problem on the other. So it's it's just stop what is actually causing the poverty in the first place. I do like that he encourages people to to approach their giving from a, a more of a humility kind of perspective and less of a savior, white savior perspective, which is, a you know, another theme. 
um, with such a small percentage going, giving to these organizations, going to the actual people in need. If you if you're approaching it as you're giving it, and you know, in a lot of ways, it has become well, it's a tax write off. So, how much can I give to avoid my taxes, right? Instead of you're giving to a cause because you believe in the cause, like really with your whole heart. That's right. That's right. And actually, uh, really understanding the really understanding the cause that you're giving it to really understanding what's going on, like actually, you know, really trying to make a difference in the in the long term rather than, than these short-term fixes. And the corp- corporations do it all the time in different ways, and that's what, what he's addressing in his book, you know, largely, that um, the corporates have this whole diversity and inclusion um, uh, aspect now, and you've got to, and, and you get training for that. And that's when you get training for that, you can tick certain boxes, but it's all, again, certain boxes. I thought it was interesting that he mentioned that um, when you do DNI training, you actually um, can have negative results from that, which I thought was very interesting because as a person of skin privilege, um, but also as a woman who's experienced, you know, some kind of ism. I have always thought that it would, those kinds of things. I know that a lot of people don't fully absorb it when it's required. They're just doing and going through the motions, but I naively perhaps believe that, that some people were getting educated through those programs. Um, but he talks about how, um, you know, it can actually cause some kind of backlash and and when someone is required to take some kind of diversity training, it just doesn't always um, work in our favor. That's right, because it's, 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 it's again, really uh, surface level. It's not really going deeper into what is the root of the issue. Just, just about that, because I am a white male, I think like there's people who like get just enough information to be dangerous. And I feel like that sometimes plays a part into it because it's like this book took me several hours and days to get through. And there's like a lot of information and I'm not going to, you know, I'm not able to digest it all. It's like, it's so much. So then if you're getting like an hour long diversity training, one, you aren't necessarily there for the right reason, but you're sort of like learning it on a surface level, because you're probably not going to go take that and like go further into it. I know in theater, like if you look at the Tony Awards, it's like 90% of the winners, especially in the design categories, are white males. And there's been, I guess I'll say a recent push to, you know, get more diversity onto Broadway, you know, expand all that. But a lot of people like me feel attacked. And I think that plays into this like, training because I have had like a number of conversations over the last couple years, you know, there's been a lot of more diverse shows or a lot of more diverse designers, um, women and people of color. But I taught, but I've had so many (laughs) like conversations, white male to white male with no one else in the room where there's something about you bring up the topic and we feel attacked. So (laughs) there's been like so many conversations where it's like I'm talking to somebody and we're talking about the topic and then people start defending themselves anyway but I'm saying all this just because I feel like 
it's it's like a little bit of training or if it's like surface level understanding if you're not going any further into understanding the history understanding why it is this way and then also going to natasha's comment of love you know attacking this all with love it's like that's that's where we need to get to but it's so easy to just sort of try to simplify and not do anything further white males why they have this white lash or this backlash is just because they're trying to simplify it and they're trying to you know make it like it's not my problem i'm not part of the problem but the reality is we're all in this whether we want to or not i don't know what all that means but just saying it yeah no i i um i totally agree with you these days uh you know there's uh, i think i've heard that is exactly before uh, someone else saying that uh, you know every time we every time someone in the room talks about a privileged white male, I, I feel like I'm under attack, and and I guess that is because uh, you are empath being able to feel the collective and the collective shame of the privileged white male. And I will say, actually, even on this show, we've had some of these conversations. People have said. To me, probably not on the air, honestly, but like, Ethan, you don't need to feel guilty or like, you know, you're, it's not your fault, blah, 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 which is all true. But I also think there's something of, yeah, but we, sh there should be some guilt. Like there has to be some recognition of what's going on so that we can actively choose to, you know, work on it or approach it with love versus just saying, oh, it's not my problem because it is it is all of our problems. <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly what Edgar was talking about in his in his uh book as well like that it is everyone's problem. You know, we have to approach it with love. And um but there is guilt and we have to feel this collective guilt and we have to acknowledge this guilt and the grief um and we have to be able to share that grief. And he's talked a lot about, you know, act actually trying to understand what it is that the Indigenous people, the Native people, have gone through at the hands of uh, the white supremacists, like uh, mentally, financially, economically, uh, how much of their lands were stolen, how much of their whole culture was stolen, what the impact, the long-term impact that it has had. Try to understand it. That is what he is asking his readers to do. And that goes really deeper than the corporate diversity and inclusion one-hour talk you have in the conference room. Calling it collective shame is really apt, right? So perhaps Ethan or a white male in that conversation has empathy and, um, you know, is not racist. For, for example, there's a huge spectrum, right, of who you can be as a white man in today's society. But let's just say you know, in this case, this person is not racist and is a fair and just person and has empathy and even has a level of awareness. And then you still feel this shame. Really, it, it is because of being in a part of this greater system where you may not individually be doing something malicious, but with the, the history and the lineage of what we have gone through as a society, you know, I've definitely heard white skinned people say, um, well, I didn't have slaves. So why is it my fault? Um, you know, like that is a really ignorant statement, unfortunately, like that, that is ignoring the greater system that's at work. And then and the reason why the system persists 
the call it the system of colonization persists is because when people take an individual stance like that and they remove themselves from responsibility, they're then unable to connect um, with the people that have suffered. That's right. That's right. That's all it, th- this is about. It's about, um, you know, t- people taking responsibility. That's all he's also talking about is like people need to start taking responsibility and we need to stop waiting for institutions or organizations like government institutions or social institutions or educational institutions or the media or or any other or the banks to roll out how um, we need to be. We've got to sort of come from from inside of us and actually feel through this uh through the problem and and grieve with the a lot about loving their neighbor and he's he used lots of lots of quotes and um you know references from people that what of what people are saying and quotations that are that i don't remember because my memory defeats me but um he's emphasized a lot about love and I and I feel that that is the new paradigm way of moving forward, coming from our heart so much, and not from that colonial mind dominance control, you know, the masculine, but a very wounded, traumatized masculine. That is what the colonial virus was. Absolutely, and you know, he um, he does publish, um, and we're going to link this in the show notes. Uh, the Decolonizing Wealth Toolkit, which is a, an excellent step-by-step guide of, of how to process some of these things. Uh, one of the sections in it is my commitment to healing. And so it very directly talks to, uh, you know, this exact problem of maybe you don't understand uh, how to connect with the history and your role in it. Um, but he talks about how we all need to grieve apologize, listen, relate, represent, invest, and repair. And these are the steps that we need to take together as a society in order to to make a difference and to move forward. And and again, as Natasha, to echo what Natasha is saying, it really comes back to this premise of love um, because it's 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 genuinely the only way that you know you can you can feel collective guilt and you can feel collective shame but if you are only looking through that lens that is uh that is not an end goal to healing you you must you know eventually get to a place where you are empathizing and and coming from a place of love in order to, to collectively heal and repair he had this like part before those seven steps it was like how to heal and he said that white supremacy and racism are just stories that humans created and that over time, you know, it's become true and sort of the foundation of just how things are today, like especially in America, <laughs> but globally. So I thought that was interesting. But then he also said, you know, asking what if is a, a legitimate tool for healing and reconstructing the world. So it's like, you know, we don't have to accept racism. We don't have to accept these systems. We can ask, what if it was different? What if it was whatever? And I, I feel like that's a good way to look at it because it's not just accepting it. It's saying we can address these things. Right. And he talks about one of those narratives being money, like where money is neutral. And we've created all these stories and narratives about what money is, but it really is neutral. And so using money as medicine is, you know, 
that uh, a step to use it in a more transformative and intentional way towards that collective healing as well. But we have to break down that old mindset of uh, it's evil. It's it's only for greedy people. It's only for the powerful. Um, you know, whenever we do a fundraiser, no matter how good of, of a cause it is, we're getting we're going for money. We it's a tool that we need in society today. And, and like it or not, it's here. It's where we are right now. And you can't not use it. You can't. Um, I mean, you can you can live in a van. But you still got to buy gas, right? Like you just, it's really unavoidable. As, as far off grid as you can go, um, eventually you're going to, you're going to need it for something. So, yeah. And, and that's something we've actually talked about before on this podcast um, about how money is neutral, you know, and it's like, it's so easy sometimes to see it as negative. I feel like less often do we see it as positive, except like I'm going to buy myself a new car or food or <laughs> whatever necessities, but it is, it is neutral the real thing is morality. The real thing is asking what if, like what if the world was this way or what do we need to do to make the world this way? And then using the money in a way, the system that we're using, but using it to enact the good. Because again, money is just nothing, but what do we want to do or how can we solve problems? How can we allocate in certain ways um, and use the money that way? Taking a break from the interview to mention the Artistic Finance Patreon page. If you want to support the work that Artistic Finance is doing, you can sign up at patreon.com slash artistic finance. If you aren't ready to become a patron, that's totally okay. You can still help us out by paying our fee for listening. And that fee is to tell somebody about the show. If you can think of somebody who might be interested in listening, text them a link and spread the love. Or if you think back to how you learned about the show, perhaps spread the news that way, share our LinkedIn post or any of our social media posts. And if you want to hire a plane to write artistic finance in the sky, that would be really cool. Albeit maybe there's too much air pollution at the moment to be doing that. So you know what, just text somebody a link. If you don't want to pay the fee for listening, you can still go back and become a patron at patreon.com slash artistic finance. And now back to the show. And he's also talked about, you know, shifting the focus from charity to justice, you know. So when you have money, you um, and when you're giving money away as as investments or for small businesses, you know, include the the natives, the indigenous, the the people of color in those percentages that will, that we will get equal share of the money. Include them in the um, in the in the board of directors and the people who make the decisions about where the money is going to go. You cannot have white people. Tell brown people what to do anymore. <laughs> like brown people need to know, tell themselves, be able to be, they need to be sovereign. We all need to be sovereign. But this is something that has been continuing for hundreds of years already. Like this is where this paradigm needs to shift, where you have equality in the boards, you have equality in the investment groups. I wrote down some of the stats for that. So I just want to, I'm just going to read them just so we have them. But 92% of CEOs are white. It's in the USA. 89% of foundation boards are white. Only seven to 8% of foundation funding goes specifically to people of color. 
And, th- and then he jumped to venture capitalism and financial services. The management of financial services is 81% white. 86% of venture capitalists are white. And uh, more than 96% of angel investors are white. Flipping it onto the receiving side, he says loans are denied to 42% of minority-owned firms. Um, I guess they're denied 42% of the time. Um, and they're denied only 16% to white-owned firms. The biggest one for me was 1% of venture capitalism funding goes to African-American and Latino entrepreneurs. So that's that whole thing of like a lot of white people (laughs) giving money tend to give it to white people and disproportionately less to non-white. And that's controlling the resources yeah, that's controlling where the how the money is spent. That is not using money as a medicine form of medicine. It is once again using money as a form of control. Imp- imposing your culture on another. It's a sp- where you're spending your resources also. But he was also talking about the balance of the money, you know, allocators versus the receivers, the people seeking the funding have to play by the rules. If you need the money, (laughs) you have to abide by the rules of whoever's allocating it out. That's a huge problem when it's, you know, mostly white people allocating out to people of color. I thought that he did a really great metaphor for that, where he talks about grant seekers. He, uh, He compares it to going to a doctor and then getting very highly confusing and regulated advice on how you're supposed to go heal. And then you're supposed to just come back in a year and proved. But it's just, it's very, the regulations are so confusing. But you're just like, okay, here, here's your medicine. Like, go away for a year, do a great job, come back improved. And, you know, we'll revisit this then. So it's, it's very, it is not, it's not very, even, even the, the ones that do receive some money, they don't get very much support. He talked about this a little bit, but we've in the podcast, we've once talked about like arts funding and how to get grants and all this. Basically, the answer, it's, it's, it's unequal in the arts world too. the nonprofit theaters or groups that are doing like community events and like really on the street funding are usually like not very well organized on paper per se. And so there's all these rules about getting arts funding where you have to be around for two years. You have to do X, Y, Z. You have to have a certain budget. Um, so a lot of the organizations like up in Harlem don't necessarily can't, aren't eligible for the grants or aren't eligible for all of the other stuff. But the bigger companies that are more organized um, and maybe have people on staff that are specific for going after grants and going after the funding, um, those well-oiled machines are able to go after grants and stuff like that. And it's, it's it feels like it's similar in in his philanthropy too, where it's like, there's all these organizations that are on the street of the people, smaller community groups that don't have the bandwidth to go seek the money. I mean, you have to definitely jump through hoops. And I mean, even I've never written a grant myself, but I remember when I was young, I didn't even try because I heard it's so hard. You have to write it in such a specific way. And there are people that that's all they do is grant writing because you've got to learn this very specific way of how you can jump through all those hoops. And I actually wrote down um, a quote from chapter four, where he talks about this specifically and says, 
uh, quote, the basis of traditional philanthropy is to preserve wealth. And that wealth is fundamentally money that's been twice stolen, once through the colonial style exploitation of natural resources and cheap labor, and the second time through tax evasion. Mostly white saviors and experts use this hoarded wealth to dominate and control, obviously or subtly, the seekers and recipients of those funds. So those regulations, like you said, Ethan, make it almost impossible for these organizations that are on the ground doing the real work to actually get funded because they don't meet these high levels of requirement. Yeah. And there there was another quote he said that was in a different section, but I feel like it sort of applies to that, too, which is uh, it was the plantation metaphor that the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And I feel like that's part of it, too, which is where people, you know, I think people can enact change or can help with this. I mean, this is why it's so important to have people of color, you know, making those decisions, because if you just keep the same people, nothing's going to change. Right. And this is also why it's so disheartening. Natasha, you were saying earlier about how Edgar himself and his organization, um, you know, was kind of thrust out of his position by. Uh, a scarcity mindset from someone else in his organization who was also a person of color. And I have witnessed this as well. Um, and it's called internalized oppression, which is one of the master's tools, right? This is one of the tools that is built into the system so that people are working against even themselves by turning against themselves or turning against colleagues of color to preserve the position that they have worked so hard and jumped through hoops to finally get. Um, because we're only letting like 1% in. And so if only 1% are allowed, then there's not room for everyone. And that's part of the the oppressive system. And that is what, you know, keeps the, the master's house intact. Yes, that's right. And keeps us in competition with each other. So we're fighting each other rather than actually looking to see that why is there just not enough for everyone? We're so busy fighting each other. We're so busy competing. And competition is is part of the whole uh, uh, colonizer virus symptom. And it's just like Malcolm X says, um, you cannot have capitalism without racism. And this is this is all tied together. That's right. So, Natasha, did you have any other um, any other takeaways or? Um, you know, an overall idea of, of what you thought the, the book was saying? I think this book is a great read for for everyone. A, to understand uh, what colonization or decolonization means in terms of wealth. Um, but it's it, from a wealth, uh, you know, he talks about it from a wealth point of view because he um, has a work history of being um, in investment and funding organizations. But uh, for the everyday person, I think that for them to just understand that colonizer virus, and I think everyone is infected by that virus on one level or the other. So this book is not just for philanthropists or for Native Indian uh, Native Native Indian people or Indigenous people or people of color or people who are interested in wealth. It's for everyone. It's for people to understand what colonization and decolonization means. And as we begin to understand this concept, 
then we'll be able to see it in ourselves and see how and 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 actually decolonize our minds and our mindsets around people of color around wealth around money and around what really actually matters which i think is each other yes the human connection and love and you know <laughs> all of that going to mexico on random trips when you know someone for 3 minutes but having in a random uh encounter like that leads to this i mean that's living from the heart that, that's amy's specialty <laughs> <laughs> living from the heart um i also yeah. would just want to say that like um th- there was this part i took note of which he was switching the colonizing i guess going from colonized to decolonized and he was just switching the words so the word colonized he was saying okay we can use decolonized is a better word this is how we can heal or or work on this but then he talked about how the elements of colonizing were dividing controlling and exploiting and so he said instead of divide we need to connect instead of controlling we need to relate and instead of exploiting we need to belong and so i I I'm trying to remember that, you know, just in in my lo- own life on on everything, you know, not just racism and capitalism and all that, but on everything, it's like, you know, connect, relate, belong. You know, don't do the other things. You know, under all of that is empathy, and that's what he was talking about as well. The you know, when you actually begin to understand and grieve and he- and actually feel the pain it's just empathize with the with people just em- empathize with with people who are who you think are under the poverty line you know if he's a homeless person whoever is in your circle start with your circle that's all he's talking about you know natasha if you feel like sharing i'd love to hear a little more about uh the connection that you made with the homeless person did you say earlier today No this is this was 2 days ago in Seattle he was um he was um I was on you know on this on the Seattle beachfront and I was walking walking along just it was about to rain and uh, my phone was really low so I needed to charge my phone and I was looking for an outlet and so I was walking by myself you know Seattle's a safe place because people keep telling you these scary stories and um I could hear some footprint footprint uh, foot steps behind me dragging themselves right like really you know someone's dragging their feet so i t- turn around and i see this homeless guy and he looks at me and i see smiles and i smile at him and i continue walking and he catches up with me he comes and he starts walking right alongside me and so this was a nice long path and i thought to myself well you know he he looks okay and if he's not okay we'll find out he says uh i know we started talking and um he was told me he was a chef the first thing he says to me is i'm looking for a job i'm looking for work i said i'm sure you are what kind of work are you looking for and then he said told me that he's you know he's a chef and he's looking for he's looking for a chef job and i said that's great and um we just had a chit chat and i was curious about him i could just standing there and 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 then we en- end up at this sort of um a big fish pub bar 
quite upper class and um, I needed to go to charge my phone. So I thought this would be the perfect place. And um, so people going to the customers kind of looked at him, looked at me when I walked in, <laughs> when I walked in and I said goodbye to him. And, and um, so I asked him if he, if he, you know, how long he'd been homeless and um, if he was, uh, and he, he'd been homeless for 10 years. He said he was confused. So I thought, okay, there's some mental health thing stuff there. And I said, do you play the, do you play any instrument? Like the, he said, yeah, I played the ukulele actually. I said, have you tried, thought about busking? He's like, no, that's a good idea. May I should go busking. So I said, yeah, you should go busking. I said, do you do any art? And he's like, yeah, I do some art as well. You should, you should go do some art. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Thank you. And give him a, you know, shook his hand and um and he was like, My name's Zach. And I was like, My name's Natasha. And he I he made his day. I bet you did. And that's beautiful. He was just so happy that someone talked to him. He's like, Thank you. He was so happy when he said bye to me. Like it was just so, you know, there was no money exchanged. I didn't want to sort of, it wasn't about that. It was just about let's, let's, let's chat. And that was, a, you know, it reminded me in the book when it said, look at poverty in the eye. I felt it when I, when I walked with him, I felt a little bit of fear. I felt a little bit of excitement. Like I really felt this guy. I felt his confusion. I felt that he was lost. I felt like he really wants to change his life. He was probably really reinvigorated after that because you gave him his humanity back for a moment, which I'm sure he struggles with, with the amount of people that ignore him or curse at him or call him bad names or who knows, you know, what he goes through on a daily basis. I'm sure it's not easy, especially if his mental health issues and he's been living homeless been homeless for 10 years that's that's a hard life and I've just I just feel energetically just from the connection how your story when you were describing it you you know it was just very um slow to connect and then by the end of it there was a real connection and you really felt the energy of that. And I bet he was reinvigorated and who knows what that could have done. That might've changed his whole trajectory. Well, if, if that just let him, made him smile, you know, like the way he did. And that, and I know that that was a real, a real smile. He's like, uh, it was so good talking to you. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It was, it was just, it gave me so much joy, you know, well, I think that is a perfect way to end this podcast uh, with a, such a beautiful story and, um, you know, and really living the truth of this book and collective healing and coming together in in our humanitarianism. Um, so thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate you being here, sharing this information with us and I hope that our listeners can really get a big takeaway from this book and this broadcast. And I think that we all have our our struggles around <clears throat> money and 
just life in late stage capitalism. And, you know, our goal here is to is to make you think twice about your relationship with these tools that we live with today and with each other. Uh, with that, I will quote Beyonce, who said, if we are going to heal, let it be glorious. Which I think is exactly what what we did here today in, in our way, a step towards that. So again, I mentioned that Edward, or sorry, Edgar Villanueva, who is our author, put together a free decolonizing wealth toolkit, which will be in the show notes. And uh, this kit has is a 30-page guide, including a ton of resources that are super useful. And it includes land acknowledgement, a Lakota prayer, and so many tools on how we can use money as medicine. Um, so thank you, everyone. And uh, Ethan, take it away. Two things I want to say are that we have a newsletter for the Phi Book Club. No, wait, the Phi Club. <laughs> and Amy, where can people sign up for that? Currently in the Instagram link in bio, there's a button called newsletter. So Utopia Dreamscape. Okay, cool. And if you don't have Instagram, you can still get there just by going to the link in the show notes, which will take you to the webpage of Amy's Instagram. And you can get the link there. <laughs> um, okay. And then next month's book uh, for July is The Money Manual. And that's going to be presented by Maitreko Palakrishnan, the CEO of Liquidify. Natasha, Amy, this was so fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. And Amy, I had already read this book. So thank you for finally picking a book that I didn't have to read. <laughs> I knew you still had dad brain. So I'm trying to help you out. I was so actually this happy. was Natasha's pick this time. So <laughs> Natasha, thank you so much. You're welcome. I enjoyed the read. It was perfect. That's it for this week's episode. What did you think about today's book? Let us know on the socials at Artistic Finance or at Utopia Dreamscape. I'm most active on LinkedIn. Now, there are actually two vocabulary words from the book that I just wanted to point out because I liked them or something. Uh Fake quitty, which is when we just talk about equity and go no further. For example, that's when somebody just makes an equity committee, but the committee doesn't really do anything. Another word was code switching. That has come to mean shifting between cultures in word choice, accents, and styles of expression. Over time, non-white people have mastered transitioning between standard white English and cultural dialects. This is also called boundary spanning. Now, I'm only putting this out because in episode seven with Wilson Chin, we had a preface to the episode about the Black Lives Matter movement, and I described code switching, and Wilson said, that's code switching, which is the first time that I had learned that word. Um, so anyway, seeing it back again, I was just reminded of that. All right, now next month, we are reading The Money Manual, a practical money guide to help you succeed on your financial journey. That is by Tanya Rapley, presented by Maitre Gopalakrishnan. Find the details and the Zoom link at artisticfinance.com slash club. Now we have an affiliate link at bookshop.org who partners with independent and local bookstores. If you want to read that book and you don't end up getting it from the library uh, and you purchase it, please consider doing it via our link, which is in the show notes. An update on Nicole and Theo and me, we are still in Springfield, Missouri. Tomorrow we go into tech for Anything Goes at Tent Theater. 
Now, I'm recording this on Father's Day. Earlier, we did the most family thing that we've ever done in Theo's first three months. We went to the zoo, the Dickerson Park Zoo in Springfield. We packed a lunch and we ate it next to the giraffes. I'm not entirely sure that Theo saw what we were seeing, but if he did, he has now seen lions and tigers, elephants and Galapagos tortoises. Now, we did have to shield his eyes from the tortoises because let's just say that two males were having a go at a female in the pen. I couldn't look away, but since we talked to Theo and explained to him everything that's going on, I didn't want other people to hear me explain to him what was going on. Anyway, happy belated Father's Day to all the fathers listening in. It was actually quite cute because uh, a number of other fathers texted me happy first Father's Day, to which I, of course, replied with a photo of Theo that was adorable. Um, and then often I would get a photo back of their child. So it was just a fun sort of father camaraderie that I've never been a part of. And uh, who knew there were so many cute kids out there? Anyway, if you're still listening, you are a super listener, and I appreciate you being here. Now, if you want to support Artistic Finance, you can sign up to become a patron. Patrons get a private podcast feed and have a direct messaging line to me. Sign up at patreon.com slash artisticfinance. Thank you in advance for doing so. It really means the world. And for our dad joke to end the episode, why did the lion wish the zookeeper a happy Father's Day? Because he knew he was roaringly good at taking care of his cubs. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance, where we interview successful artists, leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the creative community. To access our show notes and resources, go to artisticfinance.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by Artistic Finance. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting. Music